Welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are continuing our journey through the dozen 1935 nominees. Jesus Christ. With Ruggles of Red Gap, which is not the Ruggles of Red Gap, which is what I've been calling it. For most of the time. Yeah, same. (laughs) Starring Charles Lawton as Ruggles and co-starring Charlie Ruggles as Egbert Floud, which is so confusing. Yeah. (laughs) Why would they do that? I don't know. There's also another confusing casting thing that I find fascinating, but that we'll get to eventually. But yeah, I spent so much time during the kind of interminable first act of this movie, trying to figure out how Charlie Ruggles was related to the Ruggles of the story. Like, is this based on it? Nope, nothing. Just has the same name. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's really, really weird. He's really good in the role, so I understand why he was cast, but I feel like as a casting director, I would go, is this going to be confusing for people? Yeah. And yes, it is somewhat confusing for people. So the story is... (laughs) What's great about Ruggles of Red Gap is it's the first Wikipedia page for one of our movies I've seen that has the exact level of interest in the film that I do. Because it it has a paragraph kind of laying out in general what the movie's about. And then it goes, oh, also this other thing happened in Act 1. Also, there's a big scene where this happens. Anyway, at the end of it, Ruggles is okay. There definitely (laughs) is more detail in the plot than what is in the Wikipedia description. For sure. An English manservant named Marmaduke Ruggles, which is an entirely great name for someone to spend most of a film being made fun of for. Good work on that. Yes. Is wagered away by his master to a bunch of, like, rich, I guess, oil millionaires? It's never really clear. Yeah. They definitely reference oil, but it's in relation to another character called Ma. Yeah. Who also, confusingly, is not actually anyone's mother. Yeah. Like, I spent so much time trying to figure that out, too. It's like, so who is... Who married off? Who married to Ma? What is going on with the? Okay, <laughs> Who, whose kids are hers? Because she looks like she's about the same age, if not younger, than our like main nouveau riche millionaires. Yeah, but no, not 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 their mom. Anyway, they bring him back to Washington State, where they live in a remote town called Red Gap. That's barely a town. He has trouble fitting in, which might surprise you if you've never watched a movie before in your life. (laughs) Then there's this big turning point scene, at which point the movie does legitimately get a fair bit better, but also makes me so angry where he recites the Gettysburg Address to, like, everyone in the room as an inspirational thing about, like, 
personal liberty and freedom and decides he's gonna make a life for himself here and open up a restaurant. But then his old master comes back to get him back, and there's some drama about that before he stands up for himself and says, like, no, America, meritocracy, other good things. And the film ends on everybody singing for he's a jolly good fellow to him at the opening night of his new restaurant after he kicks out the one asshole in town. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much the movie. I don't think we need to like go into the plot anymore because I think all of that will come out in the details. One thing that you mentioned, though, about the infuriety of this like white English dude reciting the Gettysburg Address. Well, first of all, as if it were the Emancipation Proclamation, but second of all, as if he is in any way comparable to a slave. It also comes out of nowhere in this way where it's like if two-thirds of the way through Happy Gilmore, the lead just recited the Big Henry V monologue. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, that's a good speech, but you can't fucking do that, man. You can't just borrow one of the greatest speeches of all time to have, like, your movie be better. It's also infuriating because no one... They do this long tracking shot that's kind of the most impressive thing in the film of everyone in the bar being asked what Lincoln said at Gettysburg and no one there knows even the first fucking line of the Gettysburg Address to set up him being able to recite it. And it's absurd. Well... From what I have read, the Gettysburg Address was actually not that well-known in the 30s. And this sort of brought it back into prominence, which I find to be really questionable and and sounds apocryphal to me. I believe that about as much as I believe that the the divorcee started a dance craze. I'm sure the studio wanted people to, like... History bears out that the divorcee actually failed, at, or the gay divorcee failed at making the continental a dance craze, and they tried. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know how much credit... Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is, like, that really did bring it back, but also maybe it was just coming back, and I don't know. It was a Broadway play before. It's a very, like, stage play-y turn to act three thing yeah Mm -hmm. it works charles lawton kills it but like also it's cheating (laughs) i mean charles lawton i discovered is actually the claudette colbert of 1935 he stars in three of the best picture nominees yeah it's insane Talking about this movie actually last night at dinner with my wife and my parents for my wife's birthday and was talking about how Charles Lawton, this is the first movie I really see it because this is the first movie he does it badly, but he kind of invented Look How Much I'm Acting, Mm. which is a very popular style of film acting for getting a lot of awards. That's true. Yeah. He does a lot of like acting through the eyes and like letting you see what's going on behind the face. In this movie, a lot, it doesn't work because he doesn't quite have a handle on a good facial expression for I'm unhappy about this, but don't want to say anything. And so there's a lot of really weird shots of him just looking up and to the right and then up and to the left. And it looks kind of creepy, honestly. Charles Lawton is not an actor you feel warmly toward, which I think worked really well in The Private Lives of Henry VIII. Yeah, because you kind of get the feeling that he's a creep. And in fact, he apparently had originally been cast as Macabre in David Copperfield. 
and was fired because all of the dailies, it looked like he was about to molest David Copperfield. (laughs) Yeah, I also thought you were going to just say he was kind of a creep in real life, which he was. Um, Yeah, and when I first read that about like, oh, the dailies, it looked like he was about to molest David Copperfield. I was like, is this some kind of like gay panic thing? Because apparently he was like, if not gay, bisexual or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like some fucked up 1930s shit where people were like, oh, well, there's a guy that some people secretly know is gay. So obviously if he's around a child... And then I watched this movie where he's like our warm-hearted hero and he's still creepy. And I'm like, no, maybe it's just that Charles Lawton is creepy as hell. Yeah. But he is our Claudette Colbert for this year, down to being in the movie that won opposite Clark Gable. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing that I wanted to bring up as a weird connection to David Copperfield is that the guy that plays the Earl that originally employs Ruggles at the start of the film is Roland Young in his third consecutive Too Good for This Movie appearance, (laughs) where he's kind of just delightful. He's like delightfully smitten by the character who's the madam of this town, but they they can never directly state she's the madam of the town. No, so she's like a a nightclub singer, quote unquote. (laughs) Yeah, but he comes into town and, and has this really delightful courtship scene with her where he's just so taken with her he can't do incredibly simple drum beats, but insists on continuing to try so he can stay in the same room with her, but is also super buttoned up British and plays all of it and it's great. One of his acting choices in this movie that I love because he really, more than any actor I think that we've seen so far in repeat roles, just disappears into his character. Mm-hmm. I love the way that the Earl, like, he just kind of he just kind of mumbles about things when he's just not feeling, enti- he's not entirely sure what um, what is going on and he's a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> and it's really cute in the way that he interacts with the madam because she says, you know, oh yeah, you want to hit the drum on this. And he goes, oh, um, right, boom. And she's like, no, hit the drum, not say boom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really sweet. He also has an incredibly good pickup line of, do you believe in love in first sight? And when she says no, he goes, yes, me neither. Would you like to spend a little more time together? (laughs) (laughs) Which is fantastic. I'm always a little turned off by the, look at the English aristocracy and how clever they are and how like actually they were really into noblesse oblige and not really bad people because like I've known actual English aristocrats and they're not that clever and they're usually jerks. I think what makes that line work so well in the delivery is it's not delivered as a clever bon mot he was planning to do. It, it is delivered as he really wanted her to say yes, and is now just trying to come up with a backup plan so that he can stay around her. Right, right. And that is charming. If it was, if it was him, like, smarmily going, like, you know what line works, it would be a nightmare. Right, but he's a great actor, so he delivers it in a way that's like, oh, well, his recovery was so fast because he's actually quite clever. And to be fair, the movie does not portray him as a perfect, wonderful person. He is complicated. He's kind of a shit in that first scene, yeah. And he's kind of a shit when he comes to Red Gap and tries to get Ruggles back, and Ruggles is like, no, I'm going to open a restaurant, because he's like, oh, well, you don't have any head for business. And it's like, how would you know, bro? Yeah. 
anyway, the reason I keep bringing him up is he was also Uriah Heep last week in David Copperfield, as well as Mitzi's husband way back in One Hour With You. And he just... Mitzi's long-suffering wife. Right, Mitzi's long-suffering wife. And really disappears into all three roles. Like, I don't think I would, if I was not doing this podcast and reading the names of all these people, like, know it was the same guy in any of the roles. No, he's he's excellent. So yeah, one of the things that you really glossed over, though, in the plot is that a lot of this movie actually, not a lot, but let's say like a solid third of it, takes place while they are still in Paris on vacation, uh, which is where Ruggles is one. And for me, I know that you didn't really love the the beginning of this movie, but I thought there was a lot of really charmingly funny things that happened at the start of it. Like how Charlie Ruggles' character, who is not Ruggles... God, what is his name? Egbert Floud. Egbert, yes. How his wife Effie wants him to get some culture or whatever, so he pretends that he's been going to art galleries, but he just keeps a guidebook at the local cafe and goes and gets drunk, and then copies parts of it out in his little journal that he shows to his wife. I thought that was really cute. And then they run into like some other person from Red Gap who happens to be also doing this sort of European tour and ask the friend like, oh, where have you been? And he says, oh, we've been all over Europe and Italy as if those are two separate things. Yeah. And he tries to order stuff in French, but basically all that he does is, like, say the English word, but put E on the end. So, like, at one point he orders hammy and eggy. Oh, and a whiskey soda, which I don't know why that's... Yeah, why he went German with it. (laughs) Yeah. Or Russian? I'm not really sure what the hell was happening there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I All of that stuff was so broad and not grounded in anything that a lot of it just upset me. I also just thought that was the part where it wasn't shot very well and there were all those weird reaction shots of Charles Lawton that didn't play for me. That's fair. He does have this tendency to like roll his eyes at his head a whole lot in that first part. Yeah, but I don't want to like completely rag on it. There's good stuff in there. The physical comedy of them all trying to enter the carriage I think works. It has its moments, but it was definitely the like Oh, God, if the whole movie is this, like, shitty third-tier Three Stooges bit, I am gonna lose my mind. (laughs) But it's not. Thankfully, it is not. I actually think Mary Boland, who plays Effie, who is this, you know, she very much wants to be aristocratic, and the conflict there is that Egbert just wants to be, like, the same guy that he's always been, but with money. I think Effie is actually quite hilarious, because she's sort of a Mrs. Malaprop type, where she's always using, like, the wrong words, but she thinks it makes her sound very erudite. And I think she manages to walk the line really well of being somewhat ridiculous, but also sympathetic. I think she's quite good. I think as an actress, she's very good. I don't think the movie is very sympathetic toward her, which is a problem I have with it, that I think it really treats her as a nagging wife for almost everything in a way that bothers me to to sort of set up the action for Egbert and Ruggles. And I got kind of tired of that. I think Mary Boland, who plays her, does a really good job of grounding her and giving her some humanity. 
I don't think the movie itself is particularly interested in that in a way that bugged me. I could definitely see that. But I think that makes my like assessment of her performance even more complimentary, I guess, because she does manage to make her sympathetic in a way that I don't think the script or even the production necessarily wants her to be. Yeah. This movie has a hard time with women in general. Yeah, I was about to say, let's get to the romance subplot question mark. Where Seizu Pitts plays Mrs. Judson, who is... I, I I was not clear on what her role is. Like, she is a caterer, essentially. No one in this town seems to have a job, except the barkeep. That's it? I mean, you know, great. Maybe they're living in a, in a world where, like, when stuff needs to be done, somebody does it. But otherwise, like... Nobody has to get up in the morning. Yeah, one of those classless socialist utopias run by oil tycoons <laughs> that were all the rage in the Old West. And in the 30s, particularly, <laughs> yeah. Which actually, I mean, no, it's funny that you say that, but that is totally what Red Gap is presented as. Because the rich people are like, no, you're just like me, servant man Ruggles. And it's like, mm, but he's literally your servant. So how do you figure? This is a movie that is entirely a class comedy, and I'd have no idea what it's trying to say about class. Because it's simultaneously like, class is just a fake concept people make up, but also some people are better. Like, it's very, eh. It's a, it's a little confused on it, and a little confused on what to do about people who actually materially have more shit versus class as performance. But anyway, back to Mrs. Judson and Ruggles negging her into a romance subplot. Right. Because he comes in... And kind of by accident? Like, I don't think he is trying to pick her up. He's just like, oh, your meat sauce isn't that good because men are always the best cooks. Yeah, which the movie doesn't interrogate or push back on at all. Nope. It just accepts it and goes like, yeah, he is the best cook because he's a man who cares about cooking. And so he's going to make the restaurant. And like what we see of the restaurant, she seems to be doing all the cooking and he seems to be going out and being the, like the host. <laughs> But that's not really commented on or interrogated at all. Nope. They meet during this mistaken identity thing where for some reason Egbert has started calling him Colonel, right? Yeah. It's been two days. And as a result, people think he's actually a colonel because why else would a person do that? And Ruggles is too befuddled by the whole thing to correct anybody. Well, he does actually frequently correct people. He's like, oh, I've never served in Her Majesty's army, not even in the, I don't know what the word is that he uses, but like the recruit forces. Right. But it never seems to get through because he's not being forceful enough about it or whatever. And so Mrs. Judson believes him to be a colonel when they meet. He tries to repair the misapprehension at first, but then he goes over to her place, just lets her think that, shit talks how she makes tea, she's now in love with him. To the point where, when she learns he isn't actually a colonel, but a manservant, she's thrilled by the news. Right. Which, is it's... 
it's really fucked up and kind of unnecessary. She, they're, they're, like, if this is what you're going to do with your female romantic lead, just don't have a female romantic lead. Their chemistry is non-existent. Yeah. And Stacey Pitts is like, it's like you can see her hauling a barge behind her, trying to carry having some kind of chemistry here. Because she's great. And there is nothing there that is coming from Charles Lawton. And that is really my biggest criticism of his acting in this movie is that he doesn't have anything with her. He has way more chemistry with the antagonist in the movie than he does with her. Charles Lawton seems to be dropped in from another movie. And that movie is arguably better because that movie has his performance of the Gettysburg Address in it. But he doesn't do the comedy parts of this very well. He just stands there and is the straight man. He doesn't do the romance parts of this very well. He doesn't really sell any of the, like, growth of Ruggles. The thing he sells really well is looking constipated and English and very invested in the class system. Yeah. And, like, again, there's a whole school of acting where, like, yeah, that'll get you an Oscar. Yeah, he's very good at that. I sent you some very, very negative texts about this film when I was first watching it. And I've kind of come around on it being whatever, like being four paragraphs of increasingly shorter sentences followed by shrug, here's the cast, instead of a terrible garbage film like Here Comes the Navy that I will never forgive or forget. I think I will do both for this movie. So in addition to its problems with women, one of the few women that it actually portrays sympathetically, or at least like one of the few women that it portrays as something other than a nagging wife or girlfriend is Ma Pettengill, who I really liked up until the point where she has some weird shit to say about Chinese immigrants. Because the space where Ruggles opens the restaurant is a space that she owns that I guess she just gives him or like lets him have rent free and she's like yeah we had a chinese person who opened a chop suey place there and they ruined all the food and everybody joins in and is like yeah you couldn't order anything without them trying to chinese it up and it's like it's a fucking chinese restaurant assholes of course right also they directly state that family is violently killed oh god yeah i forgot about that i was kind of just ready to stop talking about this movie, but oh right, there's a shit ton of offhandedly incredibly racist stuff in this movie. I mean, I guess it's casual racism because it's treated casually, but there are no people of color in the entire movie. Not one. And yet we have to, like, plug in some racist dialogue? I think the other servants are an African-American and a Native American, and he kind of has to, like, roll his eyes of, oh boy, I don't know how that's gonna go. Whom we also never see. Yeah, they're just there so that Ruggles can be racist about how he has to be a manservant with non-white people. Which is really fucked up. Yeah. A lot of shit is said about Native Americans, as you might imagine, in a film set with a bunch of real Americans in the West. It's real fucked up. The way that it is sort of presented is as if it's a good thing that you don't ever see any of them because they got rid of them. Yeah. That's sort of just like always in the background for some reason. And it's really, really uncomfortable. For instance, when Ruggles finds out from the Earl that he has been traded or whatever in a poker game to America, he says the land of slavery And again, like trying to draw any kind of parallel between an English valet 
and a literal fucking slave. It's so, like, American exceptionalist bullshit. Yeah, I... (sighs) This movie is, like, rah-rah American propaganda, class is not a thing, that is couched in a, like, light-hearted comedy. It ends up being a lot darker than it thinks that it is because there is this really insidious undercurrent of white supremacy. Yeah, and like, I find it so weird that the Wikipedia page says that there's like deliberate irony to Ruggles bemoaning the land of slavery thing, and then he has no input on being part of the Floud family now. And it's like, he does though, he just chooses not to exercise it. Right, and then when he does... It's fine. Yeah. Also, the whole thing of like, yo, where does Britain get off with the moral superiority on this one? (laughs) Just because y'all said my bad slightly faster than Americans did doesn't doesn't mean that. Right. (laughs) Anyway, it is bad in every way it could be is really my point in that and not that like America should get a pass because Britain was also bad. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I feel like there's a movie on top of that that is totally fine and has like moments that are funny, but it is built on a foundation of American exceptionalism and American white supremacy. And that means that it's not a good movie. Yeah, it's also just not like, I I mean, even just outside of that, I think just a lot of it doesn't work. I think... There's a lot of the plot of this film that seems to be just kind of going, oh, is this an idea? How long can this be a thing? 10 to 15 minutes? Ah, okay. And not in kind of a charming way, not in the way that some movies we've seen should have been a TV show because they have so many ideas. In a way where it's like they're stalling for time almost. Like they know the end of this is Ruggles embraces American values and becomes a true good immigrant and finds his place in the world. And an entrepreneur. But like how we get there, it seems like it's just like, ah, maybe it's this. Fuck, maybe this. Maybe for a while everyone can think he's a colonel and so everybody has to suck up to him. Okay, we're going to throw that away. Maybe now he's going to leave town. Like, maybe this. And yeah, we haven't even touched on his antagonist. Why? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The one guy in town who doesn't like him is apparently somebody from back east from Boston. Because, of course, like, you know, if you're from back east, you're bad and stuck up and snobby. Who gives him a letter saying that Effie has fired him and here's money for a train to San Francisco. And then, of course, like at the train station, he runs into Effie and Egbert and when he's getting lunch because the train is delayed. And that's when he does his whole Gettysburg address and decides that actually he's not going to go back to service, even though he wasn't fired, he's going to open a restaurant. But it's a plot point that makes no fucking sense, because there is absolutely no way that a guy who is like, everything has to be by the book, by the book, by the book, is going to accept that some person who is not in the family, who is like just just some dude who lives in the town, is giving him a pink slip. There's no way. Yeah. And like Effie didn't give this guy permission to fire him is the most like. Yeah. What was going to happen if Ruggles talked to literally anyone in the entire town before he got on the train? Of apparently 25 people who all know one another. Yeah. It's 
like it's an insanely bad plan. And then the whole reason that he gets thrown out of the restaurant is because he says something shitty about how the Earl is going to marry the dancer, singer, whatever, the madam. Yeah. You know, he says like, everybody who's anybody is going to leave if you throw me out. And it's like, no, really? Because like, I haven't seen that anybody actually likes you that much. Right. There's such an obsession with like the status of people of culture in this town. And there are seven of them. (laughs) Like, I like... It seems like it's just Effie and this guy are like, that's the entire pecking order. Yeah, basically. It's so weird that like so much of the class stuff in this movie, like I say, is kind of, it reminds me of like Chris Nolan movies where like all the signifiers are there, but then they just kind of signify random things. Like it, it, they're not saying anything coherent, like how they're like putting Occupy protests in the middle of the Bane monologue. Like social climbing is a thing that's bad about capitalism. What are we talking about? What What's happening right now? <laughs> this movie like kind of tries to talk you through what its perspective is. And by doing that, you completely lose what its perspective is. <laughs> Because I don't think it even knows. Yeah. A lot of the class and nationalist signifiers are clothes. So it's like, oh, well, Egbert wants to wear this horrible checked suit. But then he's in Paris and the beautifully attired Ruggles, who is in his servant livery, is teaching him how to dress properly. And it's all that is like the class signifiers are exclusively people's clothes and otherwise like everybody is in what is sort of presented as a a socialist utopian white ethno state which is really fucked up also in 1908 in paris if egbert just got those checks slightly smaller he would be the most fashionable of anybody who was in that crew yeah he'd just be a straight up dandy (laughs) yeah it's actually his straw boater hat that throws him off. Just throw that in the garbage and he looks great. So yeah, it's it's not a great movie is really what, what it comes down to. It is a totally mediocre comedy that is the frosting for a, a really bitter racist cake. Yeah, so I... I mean, to rate this movie, I'm going to say three and a half, a little more than a third of it's all right. Yeah, I think I think three and a half is a legit number for this. I had to really think about it to find how the white supremacy is a thread that runs through the whole movie and not that it's not just these acute moments of racism that we have had in other movies. That it actually is like, it's a pretty consistent thing. This is a story you cannot tell after erasing all non-white people from it. And boy, this movie tries. It really does its best. Right. And it means there's weird moments where, like, Ma, who's charming and salt of the earth and great, just goes like, oh yeah, we killed an entire family of Chinese immigrants to make this town happen. Anyway, but up, but up, 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 next scene. Yeah. And it's bad. (laughs) It's really bad. It's really bad. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess, like... I guess three and a half. Yeah, I mean, like, it, again, I think we've kind of moved away from the binary failing of the screen test of time, but I think this movie absolutely binary fails the screen test of time. The philosophy at the heart of this thing it just does not hold up in 2018 at all. No, no, it has a very rotten core. <laughs> 
So should you watch this movie? Nah. No. Maybe watch that one scene where he does the Gettysburg Address and pretend like there's a movie where it's okay he did that around it. There's apparently a recording of him doing it that is totally, like, not part of this movie. Just go seek that recording because Charles Lawton is a very good stage actor delivering a very beautifully written speech. Yeah. That's fine. The rest of this movie is is real fucked up and not worth your time. And the insidiousness of the racism in this movie, I think, makes for a harder watch than something like Lady for a Day, where you have this one acute moment of the, like, fake Japanese accent. Because watching it through the whole thing, I was like, why am I really uncomfortable Yeah, in a light comedy? <laughs> and that's why, because it's a big piece of raisin shit. Yep. So for next week. Next week. We are watching Naughty Marietta, which is a, a musical comedy starring Jeanette McDonald. Okay. I love Jeanette McDonald. I do too. The poster is hot garbage. The poster is, God, extremely bad. I'm just randomly, I've looked at the end of the second paragraph of the plot, and it's shortly after the ship is boarded by pirates who kill the entire crew and take the girls ashore. So this is start, this is looking up. Things are looking up for us. <laughs> I love a good, like, light operetta where suddenly there are pirates. I, yeah, I mean, I basically love anything where suddenly there are pirates. Even Hamlet, you know, suddenly there are pirates. My favorite part of To Be or Not To Be, Ryan North's Choose Your Own Adventure book based on Hamlet, is when you get to the part where you are actually experiencing playing as Hamlet, the pirate attack that he only does a monologue about in the play... Ryan North has Hamlet constantly monologuing about, this is awesome. If I were to ever make a play of my life, I would definitely include this scene where I actually fight actual pirates. This is rad. <laughs> um. <laughs> Whoops. Well, I mean, that's how you know Hamlet didn't write the play of his life. Yep. But anyway, that is the most aside aside I've ever done on this podcast. Outside of Lives of a Bengal Lancer, but you know. Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm excited, or at least cautiously optimistic. I think there's this one this one could be pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I but with trepidation because every time that I've really looked forward to something, it has ended up being really bad. Yeah, entire medium of cinema, you've let us down a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it's like every every week I'm like, do I even like movies? <laughs> and then occasionally we get uh uh like It happened one night or the thin man. We get an it happened one night. I was going to try and come up with a second example, but occasionally we get an it happened one night. Or or you know Cleopatra, which is like hot garbage but is hilarious. Yeah. Um, and honestly, like, Cleopatra's probably more the model of what I'm hoping for out of this. Oh, yeah. It definitely seems like an exploitation film with girl pirates. Yeah. Which, fine. Good. <laughs> yeah, until then. Uh, this, this was a movie. This was a very well-performed monologue and then a lot of frames of film around it. Yes, that is what it was. This was a movie. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. All this mess. I'm packing up. We're going home, Effie. I can be pushed just so far, no further. Egbert, get dressed. 
I'm sending you over to fetch Ruggles. Now, looky here. I ain't going to have no English valet. Oh, yes, you are. No, I ain't. I got about as much use for one of them as a pig has for side pocket. I'm going to turn you into a gentleman if it chose me.